You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. We think of psychiatry as a specialty, yet some say it is family practice. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is nurse practitioner Brian Decker. Welcome. Hey, it's great to be here. So, Brian, why do you say that mental health treatment is a family practice? Well, according to the National Institutes of Health, there's an estimated 26% of Americans ages 18 or older, about one in four adults who suffer from some type of diagnosable mental illness. Now, if we're looking at a quarter of the population and, and we're seeing them in family practice, internal medicine practices, it is important for everybody that provides uh, medical care to understand the basics and be able to treat and involve these different modalities in treating people with mental illness. And, of course, there aren't enough psychiatric practitioners to go around. Oh, oh no. That's, actually, I run into that problem in my own practice with individuals who need to see a psychiatrist and, and they just aren't able to get in for months on end. And so there has to be some basic care available for individuals in order to provide treatment. Let's talk about the most common psychiatric disorders that you do see in your practice. Probably the number one that I see is uh, major depression. And when we talk about major depression, we're talking more or less a continuum of a mood disorder. So anywhere from classic depressed, almost suicidal individual to someone who is just feeling kind of the blahs and, and just not feeling themselves. And I see that at least daily in my practice, and it is important for me to be able to recognize that. It's important for healthcare providers to understand that the depression is relatively common, and just as there is a spectrum of symptoms associated with depression, there's a spectrum of treatment options available to treat depression. Now, in a primary care setting, do people come in actually saying they're depressed or do they come in complaining of other things? I see people coming in uh, with fatigue, feeling like they just don't want to go and do things. They may come in complaining of weight gain, uh, loss of appetite. Some of these, as you're well aware, are, are symptoms of depression. So when I spot this, I question them further and, and go through a listing of the various things that can suggest major depression. So you have to be a little bit of a, a detective before you figure it out. Yeah, you have to be a detective and you have to be aware of what you're looking for. There are many people that just want a pill to give them more energy so they can go about their day. But as a healthcare provider, I need to investigate not only the mental side of it, but also the physical aspects that can mimic some of the signs of depression. What other things do you see commonly, Brian? You know, other than depression, I'm seeing more and more uh, bipolar with depression uh, interspersed with uh, either manic-type symptoms or hypomanic-type symptoms. Uh, and I, I see this more and more often, and I think that I'm seeing it because I'm more clued into the fact that if someone isn't just responding to normal antidepressant treatment and they have maybe some agitation and anxiety interspersed, it can manifest as a bipolar disorder. That's, that's probably the second most common one I'm seeing now. Now, in a primary care setting, how do you have enough time to deal with what can be really complex and with a bipolar patient? With bipolar patients, my initial visits usually last uh, up to an hour of interviewing and, and physical examination and uh, with collateral contact with family members, other providers, psychosocial services, case management services often attend these appointments with the patient. So I spend a lot of time gaining the information that helps me come to that, that diagnosis. And that diagnosis doesn't come in just one visit. 
it can come over several different follow-up visits where I see a change in their behavior and, and how they manifest um, when they come to see me. And, and there's a definite difference from somebody who presents uh, depressed, sad, lethargic to someone who's coming in saying they, you know, they just bought a new um, Camaro and they don't have money to pay for it. I am very careful to, to make sure that I'm ruling out any underlying pathology that, that could be the cause of some of this anxiety and hyper, the excessive energy that, that demonstrates. So mood disorders, clearly depression, bipolar. What else do you see typically coming through your door? As a family provider, as a family nurse practitioner, in my particular practice anyway, I, I see individuals that come in with anxiety disorders. Borderline personality disorder uh, tends to exhibit just because of the patient population that I serve. Um, and I do have to be very aware of that particular diagnosis in order to effectively treat them in order to set up a care plan that brings into account the sometimes difficult symptomology associated with borderline personality disorder. So why do you suppose you see borderlines? Is it because you're aware of what it is, or is there something unique about your practice? Uh, My practice tends to focus on individuals who already have a diagnosis of a mental illness. I tend to focus on the primary care needs for individuals with mental illness. I do episodic and chronic health care, for individuals who may have a diagnosis of depression, anxiety disorder, bipolar disorder, and provide that care, and that's why I have a higher percentage. I work with case management companies, psychosocial rehab companies, in order to provide the physical care to their clients. Ah, so it's your niche. It's my niche. So what can you teach the rest of us who maybe don't have a niche in that on how to deal with borderlines? <laughs> Borderline personality is it's an interesting disorder, and and unfortunately, often misunderstood disorder. It can be quite serious, actually. It's characterized by a pervasive instability in moods, interpersonal relationships, self-image problems, and behavior problems. It disrupts family, work life, long-term planning, and the individual is not able to have a sense of, of self-identity. They often are identifying themselves by their relationships, by, by how they perceive people to perceive them. And they, they form very quick, emotional, high-energy attachments. And then when that particular high-intensity relationship is threatened in any way, then they can become uh, rageful, um, uh, angry, irritable, and, and pull away. And so that presents a definite difficulty to primary care providers because the first time you see a patient with borderline personality disorder, uh, you can be the best thing that they've ever seen in the world. You can be uh, their savior. And then uh, as long as you're going along their perceived notion of what the care plan, what the treatment plan needs to be, everything is wonderful. But the first time that you may not be available to them because you may be out of town and someone's covering call for you or something of that nature, they can become a little bit more anxious, aggressive, and hostile towards the provider. So you have to plan for that kind of thing and and understand that that is part of the disorder and set some very clear boundaries up front with the individual. This is what you can expect of me, and this this is what will happen. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Idaho Falls nurse practitioner Brian Decker. 
So back to borderlines, Brian, is it a red flag when a patient tells you that you're the best doctor they've ever had? That's a huge red flag. Darn, I was just hoping I was that good. You know, a good example, I have a 20-year-old female patient. She came to my office initially uh, with a complaint of chest pain, and this actually would be another warning sign. She had essentially fired every other provider that um, had taken care of her over the past three to five years. She was very tearful. She was agitated. She did seem to be in quite a bit of pain. She was involved with case management. She had, uh, you know, quote, burned out several different rehab workers. Her current rehab worker was the actual owner-operator of a, of a local case management company. I actually did subsequently diagnose, with the help of a GI specialist, an esophageal spasm, which definitely was causing her pain. The problem is compounded with this individual because she felt like I, I had found the problem but then immediately wanted it fixed and was not able to follow through with the particulars of the treatment. We had planned on doing a botulinum injection to paralyze that part of her esophagus that was causing the problem, but she did not show up for appointments. She did not follow through on getting transportation, and then the blame shifted, guess to who? Because she was not getting better as soon as she wanted to. I have subsequently gotten her on some medication that has eased some of the the spasms that she's been having, but she's been a very difficult patient to work with because of those borderline uh, traits that she is exhibiting. So what kinds of things, if you kind of smell them, so to speak, as they come in with the story of they have fired several physicians, everybody's been terrible except for you, who are the best, what kinds of things can you do to avoid problems? I think the biggest thing that you need to do to avoid problems is have written boundaries that you have reviewed with the patient, with their family, and with other of their support systems so that they know exactly what is going to happen and what uh, they can expect of you. The other really important thing to do is involve staff in the office in this process so that the staff also is very aware of the boundaries that are set and that they don't deviate from those boundaries. Because with borderline personality disorder, there is this shift of affections, as it were, to other staff members. So if one person is the villain, the other person is the hero in the staff. And that can switch on a day-to-day basis. So it's very careful, very important to be careful about setting those boundaries and having everybody follow that line of thought or staff splitting does happen. No, that's a great point. So often we forget to involve especially the front office staff, and, and they often deal with these patients more than any of us. Yes, this particular patient that I was talking about calls our office about 20 times per day. And we have set boundaries that you are polite. You say, yes, the message has been given. We'll call you back. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> and we call, we talk with her once a day, and that's, that's the limit. And we tell her if there's an emergency, she needs to call 911. Obviously, there's an emergency every day. But it's, a, it's been a difficult patient. I've been using everything that I've learned over the, the past many years on dealing with people with borderline personality disorder. We had a patient when I was in training in San Francisco who was a hemophiliac and a borderline personality disorder. So he knew whenever he wanted attention, he would just cut himself and it would mobilize the entire hospital 
quite effectively. And we ended up, we had to change the whole admission procedure for this one patient because he would. He'd come into the hospital 10, 20 times a day and to start a whole new admission just didn't work. So he had a binder and just kind of logged in and logged out as he came in and came out. So you do have to be a little flexible sometimes with your policies and procedures, but make it clear to the patient that you're not flexible about their particular rules. Yeah, and that brings up the whole issue of overuse of health resources and what's the ethical consideration in responding in a timely manner to a patient's issues and needs. Brian, what about the patients that may be suffering from an addictive disorder? How do you manage those in your practice? That's a difficult patient population. By virtue of their brain chemistry, the addiction that they deal with tends to leave them with some judgment issues as far as follow-up and the whole issue of drug-seeking and and seeking out uh, medications from other providers, and then the whole issue of chronic pain management in individuals who may have an addiction issue. I want to thank our guest today, nurse practitioner Brian Decker. We have been discussing some of the common psychiatric problems that are seen in family practice. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. 